Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloud. We talk weekly about all things AWS, Google, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, and Peter. Episode number five, recorded on January 8th, 2019. Title, The Cloud Pod, now 50% cheaper. Hey guys, how's it going? What are you drinking tonight, Peter? Hey, um, I ran out of bourbon, so tonight we're having a little Templeton rye. Nice, nice. One ice I, cube. One ice I'm cube. Ha- I'm having a lovely glass of ice water. <laughs> I have the lime mint soda water. That's awesome. Oh, very nice. That sounds boring and boring. It needs extra flavoring of some kind. <laughs> I think it's the advantage of the recording location since you're recording from your home and I am I'm not. <laughs> yeah, good point, good point. We do have the keg over there, though. We do have the keg. Yeah, we, we might need to tap into that for these recordings. I think so, yeah. We could bring a guest in as long as he brings in two beers. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be awesome. Let's get to the news, guys. So first, you know, Amazon had the... Uh, well, Amazon actually hasn't confirmed this, but according to TechCrunch and CNBC, um, Amazon reportedly bought Cloud Endure for approximately 200 to $250 million, depending on which article you believe. Um, which is an Israeli-based uh, DR company that provides DR as a service, backup, migration technology. Uh, and so that broke this morning. Uh, so Amazon, thank you for that, uh, although you're not confirming. Uh, but it's interesting news. It's weird, right? It's something that people have been asking for from Amazon for the longest time because they didn't support uh, snap mirror type backups for EBS and database replication was all on the app teams, all the DB teams. And this is this is like the OS layer replication for like really short RPOs for failover between regions. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I, you know, I saw Cloud Endure. There was a blog post a little while ago from Amazon specifically talking about their migration capabilities. So I have a feeling that uh, although Cloud Endure probably has some pretty cool DR functionality, I'm kind of betting that Amazon if this is going through, is more interested in their migration tools. Obviously, migration to AWS. I kind of wonder if they're going to terminate support for the other cloud providers or whether they're going to keep it around. Right, yeah, as a as a target, not necessarily as a source. I think they, you know, the, the interesting analysis on this is that, you know, they're looking to help customers be able to move data to and from the cloud in a DR capability, and that customers are typically very interested in resiliency and providing that resiliency. And so if this... And simplify that story and make them look like they're a good player between Microsoft and Google. Maybe this is a interesting story for them as well as it keeps them out of hot water with uh, any antitrust uh, conversations that might come up around the cloud. Um, well, you're not that locked in. We have this great tool you can use to uh, move between the cloud providers. I guess you know, one of the challenges we've had moving moving large databases and things is is simply we can't take the time to use. Uh, snowball and uh, replication you can't always use unless you take the service down to t- turn on the right kind of logging. So I guess um, maybe this is a, a migration enabler for them. I think it's great for migration. I mean, when you look at like data replication, you'd think Amazon's going to want to do that. Like, wh- why limit yourself to a tool that is like limited by the public API instead of getting under the covers like Amazon does for Aurora, right? Where it's replicating sort of at the at the product level between AZs, why, you know, why not extend that to regions instead of um, a tool like this? It feels to me more like DMS, Data Migration Service, is going to turn into Migration Service. Yeah, definitely. Definitely see that coming down the path. And this is a good acquisition for them. Uh, you know, they raised over $18 million, uh, from companies like Dell, VMware, Mitsui, Infosys, and Magma Venture Partners. So 
$200 million exit. Uh, I assume, you know, they had hit product market fit. And, you know, I'm curious to see how this turns into an Amazon service in the future. So the other uh, big announcement that Amazon blessed us with this morning was around Fargate. Uh, and Fargate being their fully managed container runtime engine. So instead of running ECS hosts or Kubernetes nodes, um, you can basically just declare your task or container type, put it into Fargate, and then you would execute it based on the number of CPUs and the number of memory uh, gigabytes you wanted to have allocated to the container. And for as long as that was running, you would basically get uh, you know that benefit, but at a really high price tag. Uh, and now this morning, they've announced up to a 50% price reduction in some of the form factors, depending on CPU and memory. Typically, the cost savings were on the more on the memory allocation side than the CPU based on the charts, uh, but really a fantastic announcement and really brings Fargate to a whole different level of adoption, I think. Still pretty expensive, but um, read reading the announcement, they, they said the thing that enabled them to lower the cost was, was by uh, switching to, to Firecracker, so they speed oh. up deployments. Well, it was one of the things they mentioned in the Firecracker presentation was that you know it was going to lower costs of their container platform and Fargate in particular. So it it seems sort of like they were going to, they wanted to announce this maybe at reInvent and didn't quite make the cut. Yeah, it's kind of the, the direction they always go. They start with these managed services and they're not going to lose a bunch of money on them. But it seems like the target is get the price really back down really close to the AWS primitive resources that it's consuming and just give people other options on how to consume them. I was looking at some of the numbers, and when I did the first Fargate calculation, I basically just took a an EC2 instance uh, and then basically determined if I had you know, this number of containers or this amount of memory allocated to them, this is what it would cost me um, to run those in Fargate versus what it would cost for the EC2 host. And so that worked out to be you know significantly more expensive than just running an EC2 host in my previous math. Now, when I ran the same calculation today, it is still a bit more expensive on an on-demand perspective, but the curve is much closer on an RI purchase. Um, so you see that it's it's slightly cost beneficial to you if you were doing uh, Fargate over doing RIs. And then uh, if you're doing spot instances, of course, ECS instances are still significantly cheaper than going with this solution. But overall, I think it really starts changing the conversation about containers in a big way. And I'm really excited to see where people go with this. If you were going RI for RI, how close was the pricing that you got? Within six to nine percent. Oh, awesome! So that, that line's almost yeah, that line's almost straight up with sort of the RDS premium. Yeah, it does actually. I didn't think about that, but uh, it totally lines up with the RDS premium. All right. Uh, so then, uh, right before the new year, we didn't cover this at the time, but we're going to cover it now. Uh, Cloudera and Hortonworks uh, closed their merger, and of course, Cloudera and Hortonworks are the two biggest uh, manufacturers of software in the Hadoop EMR space. Um, and the interesting thing about it was this money quote. Uh, the big competitor for us is Amazon with their house offerings. Cloudera CEO Tom Riley told CNBC in an interview last month in preparation of the deal's closure, we're gearing up to take on Amazon, uh, which really kind of caught my eye. It was an interesting comment. Are they running servers? Did I miss something? How are they competing with Amazon? Yeah, I, I don't know either. I, I mean, would you really want to separate your, your data lake EMR Hadoop service to a SaaS business that they're potentially running versus having that data close to my, my compute infrastructure? It, it doesn't quite make sense. Uh, I, I am curious to see where they end up going with this and why they feel that's, a, that's their competitor to beat. But in the machine learning space and big data, Google's just as big a competitor as Amazon is. So it's, it's weird that they're specifically targeting Amazon.com. Well, Amazon, I think, just based on their market penetration in that area, right? Not necessarily the technical comparison to GCP, but 
I'm sure Amazon is way ahead from a standpoint of workloads. But like EMR, I don't know. EMR runs Hortonworks. I don't. I don't see the the competitive. Uh, I don't. I don't see the decision people are going to make unless the the comment is Amazon is going to develop their own proprietary sort of slant on Hadoop to uh, to make it you know more integrated or or work better on Amazon. I don't know. Well, Cloudera and Hortonworks basically competing for the same you know, some of the same business. So, so now then they don't have to waste their money fighting each other anymore. They can, they can save that, I guess. That makes more sense. That makes it, I mean, that, that, that's a classic great reason, right? Well, I look, I do look forward to, you know, the eventual acquisition of this product by Oracle, which is, it's clear, clearly next path after this is if they can't compete against Amazon, who will buy them. And uh, I think that next most likely people is probably Oracle. What about IBM? Eh, maybe IBM, but uh, this definitely feels more like an Oracle play. You know, database, big data, Oracle's wheelhouse. Uh, maybe IBM would, but yeah, I don't know. I I feel like they they both you know took a lot of damage to each other's reputations by attacking each other for a long time. And yeah, well, their stocks didn't do too well. Yeah. On the announcement, they were valued at five point two billion when the merger was announced, and uh, as of the close of the merger, they're only worth three. <laughs> Wow, <laughs> that's painful. Brutal. Yeah. Well, I do hope to see them uh, maybe recover. We do have some friends over there uh, who are anxiously hoping that that's a successful merger. So I do wish them all the best, and I do hope that they uh, they work this out. But uh, it's going to be interesting times for them in the next uh, quarter or two as they you now apparently gear up to compete against AWS. Speaking of AWS, stay up to date with the latest AWS news every Monday morning with the Last Week in AWS newsletter. Corey Quinn gathers the news from AWS, strips out the stuff that nobody cares about, and makes fun of what's left. Subscribe today at lastweekinaws.com. Snark delivered to your inbox. Less fog, more cloud. So the other uh, fun story, and we don't talk about this very often, but um, Corey does in his newsletter, uh, basically the S3 bucket of shame <laughs> award that he gives in his newsletter. Uh, and but this one, this one crosses a threshold that I, I think we had to comment on it. So Guardzilla, which is apparently the maker of IoT security cameras, um, apparently put access keys into their source code that they run on the device to upload your security camera footage to their S3 buckets. And those buckets are publicly facing uh, with that with that key, and you can download anyone's security camera footage and see what's on them. So if you have a Guardzilla security camera, I would recommend you immediately unplug it, um, as they have yet to respond to this vulnerability. They have been very quiet, and they have not talked about what their solution to this, this mistake is going to be. But uh, this is a big trust and loss of trust in uh, this company, in my opinion. Well, if I was if I was AWS, I would almost forcibly um, turn off access to those buckets just to preserve my own face. Letting that customer data just sit there bleeding out to whoever wants to download it is isn't good for anybody, especially Amazon. I'm still baffled because you'd you'd look at the um, the Guardzilla's product and you think, okay, you know, if it's going to kill their company. Um, because it's going to take them so long to put out a fix that they'll be dead before, uh, if they turn everything off, they'll be dead before they can put the fix out. I would get it, but this is, in my opinion, and correct me if I'm wrong, this is as simple as um, changing those the permissions allowed to that key to just put only and not get. Right. This is a five-minute fix. 
I mean, that's a five minute quick fix, but you, you still need to do it properly. And, you know, you need to have, you know, dual authorization on both sides and a handshake occurs to actually get a unique key per device. I mean, that's where you want to go. For sure. Uh, but right yeah. now, yeah, it's a quick fix but in the short term. People are downloading now. right now. People are downloading other people's literally footage from inside their house. And and it's a five minute fix to stop that from happening. A five minute patch to stop that from happening. And they haven't done it. That's incredible. And the bigger crime is that they, they haven't admitted it. There's there's no mention of it on their website in any way. All I see is this stock photo of this man holding this baby in the air. I don't see anything in their press releases or anything that they are aware of this issue. And yeah, it's just really shameful. Like I, I can't imagine that this isn't gonna cost them a ton of money in fines too. Oh, for sure. I mean, how long have they been around for? Are they, are they a big company, you think? Or are they, I mean, I assume it's cheap commoditized hardware with some cheap UI kind well, of Well, uh, I mean, I see when their Twitter account came to be. <laughs> yeah. uh, it came around in 2014. They're based out of St. Louis. Um, it's very interesting because like, most of our social media is actually very quiet. There's, there's really been nothing really posted since June of 2018. I wonder how real this company actually is or if it's it's sort of gone belly up and they're just kind of working through something mm. that's bigger than this. You know, it's just it, the fact that it's so silent and there's just been no acknowledgement just really blows my mind. Great, uh, great branding opportunity for all the larger companies out there who are selling maybe similar feature sets at a higher price to say, do you really want to trust a company that you haven't heard of? Yeah. I, I had never heard of them until this, this flaw came out either. So uh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely unplug your device if you have one. That's all I can say. And if, if their website has a way to delete your data, I would do that too. Exactly. But that's just if you can't delete your own data with the access keys they embedded in the device. <laughs> you, yeah, we could probably go up and delete everybody's. I wonder if delete is access is enabled with those keys as well. So moving on to better news, uh, Google purchased Dora, which is the DevOps Research and Assessment Foundation. Uh, this is a company started by Jez Humble and Gene Kim. Uh, basically comes in and helps companies evaluate the uh, your DevOps practices, how well you're doing against benchmark companies. Um, they produce the annual DevOps report and kind of the status of the industry as a whole. So this is an interesting acquisition. Definitely looks like Google is trying to get more DevOps expertise and more thought leadership in this space. And I'm, I'm glad, I, glad these guys find a good home. It seems like a good acquisition. I feel like Google internally probably has that expertise, but uh, Dora brings this productized offering i think that they can go offer to their customers who are you know not making the progress they would hope to have been making in um in adopting the cloud and so i, I was thinking that that's what google's looking to do is just to help accelerate that process for um their customers who you know they got buy-in from executives that they want to move to the cloud and they do an executive you know an ea uh, and, and, you know, they open a bunch of uh, open accounts and start projects and then no workloads seem to be moving <laughs> and they can't figure out why it's like, yeah, maybe we can help, uh, help them on the organizational side to help them get over those non-technical hurdles. Is Gene Kim still involved in the, in the, uh, project? I believe he is. He, um, you know, the, the annual report came out in 2018, 
you know, it was heavily sponsored by Google, uh, actually, the 2018 version of the State of DevOps report. Um, but, you know, he's on the talk circuit. You know, he does a lot of conferences and he presents his data and is trying to get companies to really move this needle. Uh, I don't know if he's completely in the, you know, in the day to days of Dora, but he's definitely associated to it in a strong way. And I think he's he's still part of it. I think Jez is also um, somewhat associated with it. I don't know if he's a full time job, but he's definitely heavily involved as well. So speaking of Dora and Gene Kim, have either of you read his fantastic book, uh, The Phoenix Project? Many times. I read The Goal. The called The Phoenix Project is based on The Goal, uh, and it covers uh, an IT organization who's going through some rapid change in their organization, needing to, you know, missing deadlines, having problems with product, stock markets beating them up, all the things that seem to happen at all the companies I work at for some strange reason. But overall, it's, it's an interesting roadmap of how to think about DevOps and cloud security and these things, these new practices we talk about in the DevOps world. And really, it's a fantastic exploration in a fun narrative style to tell you taking a different approach, looking at theory of constraints, ad- addressing um, issues with production and how you can do more deployments and have less dependencies on single players in your organization. It's really fantastic. I liked how he kind of leads you through it in a way which makes you feel like you've discovered it for yourself. I, I still believe he works at every company I've worked at. I, and I've read the book uh, three or four times now. And it's interesting to me how every time I, find, I get something new out of it that is related to something I'm doing at my current job or some cultural change I'm trying to push through in my organization. So definitely, if you haven't listened to the book, I would definitely take a listen to it on audible.com. You can download your free audiobook, including The Phoenix Project, at audibletrial.com slash thecloudpod. All right. I'm committing. I'm going to do it. The most interesting announcement of the week uh, comes from our friends over at Microsoft and GitHub, who've announced that your public repos of bad code can now be made private, as they now offer you the ability to make your public repos private for free uh, for up to three collaborators, which is, I think, a fantastic move. uh, And I can now remove all of my embarrassing code from the internet. (laughs) I love the way this was reported with the evil Mr. Burns. Yes, yes. The headline on the on the register was fantastic. This is the final straw, evil Microsoft. Making private GitHub's repos free? You've gone too far. That is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it pretty much should say uh, free private repos for personal use only. Because there's not too much you could do with two collaborators, but it's still super cool. Sometimes I don't want my my personal side project to be <laughs> out in the internet, and I don't want to pay seven dollars a month for it. So what I would typically have done is, you know, used uh, a GitHub plugin for Dropbox, so that I can just basically write that to a Dropbox through this plugin because you can't do it natively. Well, I do say that if you're not paying for the product, then you you are the product. Nice. Well, I mean, if they if they want my code, you know, more power to them. I I'm sure they have better engineers than I who can who can give them better code. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess storage costs are, are uh, pretty low nowadays. I don't imagine the number of GitHub users who will take advantage of this will, will, will move the needle in any way. I mean, I feel like it's all sort of this uh, this trap, right? It's all it's all a Venus flytrap to get you into the Microsoft ecosystem. You know, we bought GitHub. Now we're making integrated individual studio code. We're giving you repos for free. And then the next thing you know, you're, you know, you're running a .NET application on Azure. <laughs> I don't know what happened. That's how I see it going down. <laughs> Where are my files turned to ASPX files? What happened? Let's move on to the amazing Peter for the lightning round. Awesome. All right. Windows Server 2019 AMIs are now available on AWS. What's what's different about 2019 versus 2018, Peter? No idea. Am I supposed to know? 
No, I don't know either. Oh. <laughs> 2019 has uh, better support for smaller containers. So now, now if you're going to deploy a Windows container, it doesn't take eight gig anymore. You can. <laughs> it's only seven. Yeah, it's only seven. It's only seven. <laughs> Fantastic. All those are great, though. I mean, those things. Those, all, supporting that stuff quickly makes it super easy for your customers to not worry that they're going to be a year behind the curve. Speaking of DevOps, when I think of DevOps in the cloud, I think of Foghorn Consulting. Foghorn has been around since 2008. They've been on the forefront of cloud enablement and have delivered powerful transformations for hundreds of clients from startups to Fortune 500, including highly regulated industries. They were early visionaries and practitioners of using code to automate infrastructure and operations to drive up cloud efficiencies while driving down costs. Terraform, Ansible, Jenkins, AWS, Asia, and GCP. Go to fogops.io slash thecloudpod to learn more about their Fogops services and sign up for a free, well-architected framework review. I think it's pretty cool. All right. Um, parallel cluster is now available in Sweden. I mean, if I ever needed to parallelize my Stockholm syndrome, this is the way to do it. <laughs> Do you, do you feel trapped by this product? <laughs> I do, I do. Awesome. You will do all projects in HPC partitions. <laughs> I, I love these products where it's, this product is available at no additional charge. You just pay for the resources you need to use to run your applications. You know, join us. Don't don't look at the data transfer costs. Don't don't look at that. That's the that's the wizard behind the curtain. Next, Alexa announces a skill builder beta cert. I didn't know that I needed to be certified to prove my I could write a very simple Alexa script. It's, it's a weird choice. I mean, I, I guess for people doing more complicated work with Alexa, it's, it's interesting, but I, I don't think I'm going to get this one, guys. I'm sorry. Alexa, test my skills. Maybe, maybe it'll be a voice-activated test. <laughs> Alexa, make Jonathan take my test for me. <laughs> uh, next, uh, WAF. Uh, AWS WAF now includes a monitoring dashboard. I mean, as weird as this one sounds, I, I am glad it now supports IP version 6, which seemed to be a pretty big miss in WAF before this. But uh, yeah, okay. And I mean, how, how many how many guys are you going to have sitting there looking at billions of packets going back and forth, though? Like, I, think, I, think, I, think, I think dashboards for people are just the wrong solution for this. <laughs> I mean, Amazon has uh, only like three three security CISOs on call on a rotation on any given day. I, I, if I recall what the CISO said at the presentation where he blew my mind, how few people they have. In yeah, but they all have pre, pre-purchased pre tickets to the Bahamas <laughs> for when it really hits the fan. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, Project Bali. Mike, uh, researchers at Microsoft are working on a new privacy tool that would give users the ability to control what happens to the data that's collected about them online. Wait, no, this isn't just online. This is specifically collected by Microsoft. And the fact that the fact that somebody had to think about researching uh, that people may want to keep their data private is just kind of it's just bizarre to me. Like, I, I'm sure this all came out of the GDPR stuff, and they they had to build these tools for internal transparency. But I don't know. Maybe maybe it'll. <sighs> Maybe it'll be a good starting point for other people who need to build the same kind of thing, and maybe it'll be a kind of a kickoff to the whole blockchain-based personal information thing. You know, you can keep all the information on your own blockchain and, and then grant access to who you want to have it. It could be interesting. 
you know, if you've ever done the, um, or you go to Facebook into your settings and you say, please download um, everything you know about me. And then you go through that data and you become horrified at how bad Facebook knows you. Uh, I would sort of be curious to know what Microsoft knows about me. So if this ends up in a way that I can download all the data that Microsoft has about me, I would, I'd be curious to know what they know. I think what's interesting about this is is not not just the data that you've given them, but the data that they've inferred or derived about you based on the other stuff as well. Yeah, that's what you get in the Facebook download mm. too, and uh, that was the my. I mean, I have a Facebook page that I I use to basically support the CloudPod page, but uh, I I don't really use Facebook because after the tool, I I have no trust of them ever. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Again, if you don't pay for the product, you are the product. <laughs> Yeah. And in Facebook's case, you are definitely the product. <laughs> All right, next, EMR announces a 99.9% SLA. So they're announcing that they're GA. GA. Yay, GA. We should have a GA party. Yeah. And that's it for the lightning round. Ah, yay. Who's the winner, Peter? Um, You know, God, goodness, I wasn't keeping score and I got to get better at that. Next time, I promise. I'm going to actually give scores next time. Well, as a, as a current champion, I feel like you still have to pick one, even though you I didn't am. properly score I'm, it. it ju- and just for that, I'm I'm picking Jonathan. Oh, and it's, oh, dang it. It's, it's, mostly, it's mostly out of spite. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Well, Fantastic. Maybe, maybe the previous week's winner should get to decide who the, this week's winner is. In a pass, no. Passing on the torch. No, no, the, uh, no. <laughs> No, I decide. I'm the I'm the Yeah, it's just the Japanese. Lord. Yeah. <laughs> Templeton Rye. The Templeton Rye, yes. All right, let's move on to our new segment, Cool Tools by John. You know what? I'm I'm still on the Alexa announces the skill builder thing. You know, you need six months program experience and you have to have published one skill to get the certification. That's just that's just like a really poor barrier to entry. Anyway. Well, I, I mean if you publish a skill, it means it has to meet Amazon's requirements for what a skill could be. Uh, but then, like, does the testing center validate that you actually have a skill in the marketplace? Because those guys, as much as I like them, they they don't do a lot of pre-checks. Like, I... <laughs> no. Dude, those testing centers are great. I was there once, and uh, they got that the guy next to me in the cube next to me taking obviously a different test is reading under his breath the questions and the answers out loud nah, for like fantastic <laughs> it was terrible it was you on speakerphone to somebody <laughs> answering the questions I, oh i know i know i was like what's happening and then he kept doing it and i, I was like dude i'm not going to pass my test because of this guy and i'm going to be so pissed off i've been i've done both of mine at uh, reinvent and they are very strict about the noise and the reinvent uh testing center so if that's uh, what you need to do, I would do it at reInvent personally. But uh, well, then I, was... I do know that I do know that I did my DevOps Pro and I passed uh, the the gentleman to my left and the gentleman to my right, and I don't know who they were, but bless their souls, they both failed. And so when I was going through the questions, and the guy on the right fails and he walks off dejected, and the guy on the left walks off dejected, and then you know you go through the thing, and then, of course Amazon says at the end of the thing, like, fill, please fill out this survey to tell us what you thought about the test. And I'm like, I don't care about the test right now. I just want to know if I passed. And then finally it comes up and says, you know, you successfully. And it took everything in my being not to stand up and, and hoot as loud as possible uh, at that moment. So, but uh, yes, I uh, <laughs> the testing centers could uh, that are not at reInvent could use some work. They could use some work. Although it was my own fault because then I, after looking around, exasperated, trying to figure out what I'm going to do because I can't read my own questions, right in front of me was a set of those noise canceling earphones, headset. 
And I picked that up and I put it on and I was pretty much okay from there. Oh, no. yeah. I had a pair of those things once and it seemed to remove all the background noise, all the white noise, which usually helps you drown out the other noise. And people's voices would just come through those things as clear as day. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> ah, well. All right. So we've got a new section this week for Cool Tools. You, you can come up with a better name. I, I, you can workshop it. Oh, yeah. Utility of the week. Utility of the week. Tool of the week. <laughs> Again. <laughs> we, we're going to have to avoid the word tool. I think, I think so. I'm, I'm fear we're kind of like descending into the Beavis and Butthead kind of. Uh, <laughs> there's a couple of times in the last episode where we're all kind of laughing together and thought, wow, that just sounds like MTV from 1992. He said tool. I can't wait to see how this is that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just put it like totally somewhere else, right in the middle of like the lightning round. He said tool. Uh, this is what the ad takes it for. This is what I'm going to index everything. The first is the AWS console recorder, uh, tweeted by a few people, including Jeff Barr, over the past couple of weeks. This is a Chrome plugin. It lets you browse through the AWS console. It records all of your actions and generates a CloudFormation template um, at the end of the session. Any, any resources you create manually in the console appear as resources in the CloudFormation template. I think it's a great starting place for some people. Um, you know, CloudFormation can be somewhat intimidating to get you into uh, the Amazon ecosystem and learning the formerly JSON syntax, now YAML syntax, you know, is, is a lot of lifting. And so if I can, you know, click into a GUI and go do what I need, what I know how to do in the console and then get kind of a good starting place, it's a good training tool. So I, th- I mean, I don't know if I would use it for production, but I think from training perspective, I think it's a f- great starter for people to understand how what I'm doing in the GUI translates to an API call or to a CLI command. And I can see that represented. I think that's, it's a nice improvement. It's a nice um, option for people who, especially coming from the Windows family, maybe, who are not as familiar with automation technologies. It's a good good move. Yeah, I was trying to pick some holes in this and try and try and uh, try and find the negative side. I was like, oh, well, you shouldn't be doing this. You shouldn't be creating CloudFormation templates like this. And then I think, well, why? You know, it's just a, an alternate input mechanism. Instead of typing and just using the mouse, and uh, I can see it, I can see it being pretty useful, pretty pretty efficient. Pretty efficient. Yeah, but, I mean, Amazon has a similar tool called CloudFormer that um, you know you basically run an EC2 instance in your account, and then it scans what's in your account, and then produces CloudFormation code that's kind of garbage, um, and it doesn't work very well. So I mean, if this if this even is you know can sort of meet the same need without the overhead of running an EC2 instance to figure out what's in my account. Um, I, I still think it's a nice, nice improvement. Yeah, I think training. It's about learning what I need to cr- write in a CloudFormation template in the future because, um, I mean, the resources that you create aren't going to be under control of a stack. So if you were going to use that, you'd tear down and rebuild from the template, which is fine. Uh, but most of the times when we're, we're moving to templates, we, we have uh, higher goals than just very explicitly defining specific sets of resources. We want to parameterize things. We want to do lookups. We want to, you know, we want to make it smart. And these by definition can't be smart because they don't know the context. They don't know what you're trying to accomplish. But from a tool, from a standpoint of learning real quick, what would it look like if I wanted a uh, cloud formation template that had a, you know, an auto scaling group and a, especially like a, you do like who learned the hard way, how to do a role where you don't, you know, in the console, you just create a role in IAM, but in a CloudFormation template, you have to create a role, you have to create an instance profile, and then you have to create um, a policy that allows that profile to assume that role. Three resources instead of one. I think it's kind of cool for that. 
Did you ever use the CloudFormation designer interface? I think it's like once you get over the hump, it's so hard to get over the hump using you know, resource blocks to define things that you're visualizing in your head or that you see currently on a, on a, um, on a topology. And once you get over that hump, it's like the fastest way is just, I know what I want. I'm just going to write the code. I am a little worried about the fact that there's really only one contributor on this project and uh, Amazon moves at lightning speed. And uh, I would like to see him continue to build this out. I, I hope it doesn't lose interest. That's my only my only hesitation about this. Is that, and he also wants to do outputs for Photo 3 and Terraform and Troposphere. There's a lot he's asking to, or wanting to do here. And I do wish him the best of luck, but uh, he's, he's definitely got a long road to hoe. <laughs> so, Jonathan, what do you think about the AWS CLI builder? <laughs> I think he's going to suffer the same the same problem as the console recorder in the end, in that keeping up with the pace of Amazon's changes and keeping these these interfaces up to date for all the extensions to the services will be virtually impossible for any single contributor. Yeah, I mean, you see how you see Terraform, and I, they do an amazing job at HashiCorp of keeping up uh, with uh, Terraform. But that it's just it's just it's, you always I'm always amazed when they're you know a couple weeks. Uh, uh, after a service is announced and they've got, um, they've already integrated it. I couldn't imagine trying to do that as a side project. Couldn't imagine it. But again, this is another one of those tools where super cool for learning how to use the CLI. A lot of the syntax in the CLI, like when you try to use filters, even I could read the documentation a hundred times and write it incorrectly a hundred times until finally I figure it out. And I think it's a super cool shortcut or um, if you're stuck getting some weird syntax error, maybe that's a good way. Even if they don't support the thing you want to do yet, at least it can give you uh, a couple of samples and maybe you can see where you've gone wrong. You know, I, I like this tool. I think there's definitely a, a learning curve for the CLI. Um, I typically have used a tool called AWS-Shell, uh, which actually Amazon it was sort of a similar project started out by an individual. And then I think eventually he was... Uh, Aqua hired into Amazon. He's actually working on the CLI team now, I believe. Um, I think it's it's good. I wish it was a little more, you know, command line driven because that's where you want to do these things. Like, do I really want to copy and paste from a browser to a command line? But you know, anything to help people figure these syntax out because some of these get complicated, especially when you're doing filtering or you're doing um, some of the other more advanced commands versus just a simple describe instances command. Um, it's nice. I, I think it has some utility to it. I, I agree with Jonathan. I think it struggles from the same problem of how does it keep up. And, you know, it's, it's the guy who runs it or created it, Prasad Damala, who, you know, props to this guy. He, he did a lot of work on this and I, I give him props. But, uh, you know, he's, he's definitely super passionate about Amazon. He's got four certifications according to his website. He's got a bunch of videos on YouTube that he's done around different uh, Amazon components. So he's definitely passionate. And as long as that passion continues to build out this tool, I, I think it, it's a good place for new people to start out and start learning Amazon. I'll tell you what I want. I want a tool where I take the, uh, the JSON output response from a CLI highlight a chunk of it, and then automatically generate the awk command to get that out of awk, it. no. No, just use, just use JQ. <laughs> <laughs> or J, yeah, yeah, JQ, excuse me. Yes, JQ, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm like, I was thinking I of JQ. JQ. I don't know why. Oh, yeah. Yes, JQ. You Ruby guys. <laughs> no, I'm all over JQ. I yeah, I've got a, a link. And actually, I'll, I'll put this link in the show notes to uh, the documentation for the James Path CLI tool uses. It's absolutely fantastic. If you ever get stuck with, with filters or, or queries, it's uh, valuable. 
Uh, where can we find these fantastic tools, John? Uh, we can find them in the show notes at thecloudpod.net. And that's it for this week's episode. Here at the CloudPod, we strive to bring you the latest news regarding AWS, Asia, and GCP, and we're here to help you navigate the world of cloud computing. If you have any questions, reach out to us on our website, thecloudpod.net, or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. 